Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, while you were out on one of your many vacations, I well, I sort of went off the ranch and, and did my own thing. But you happened to have your recording equipment with you. I know. It's so funny how that keeps happening. I wondered if you can guess what sort of topic I might rush towards if I'm not under your strict supervision. Something tells me neoliberalism. Close, but it was not neoliberalism. Any other guesses? My second guess would be that it has to do with the shadowy uh, operatives who stand to profit from particular policies in public education. You, sir, are a mind reader. (laughs) (laughs) I recently had a chance to sit down with economist Gordon Lafer. And what Gordon did, he was really the first person to look state by state at all the different laws that were pushed through by the corporate lobby after the Great Recession. And we, we sort of throw around this term corporate education agenda. I don't know if you do, but it's one I've used a lot. And it means all sorts of different things and it can mean nothing at all. And I think one of the things that's so confusing is that the the sort of policies in it don't seem to have any real logical connection. So in one state, you might see a real push for tighter accountability, A through F report cards. In another state, you see um, the standards for entering the teaching profession being watered down. You know, it seems to me like uh, corporate interests would not align around any particular ideology with regard to education policy. And I would be surprised if they were backing evidence-based policy. So I guess the question that arises for me is, what is the unifying element here uh, when we're talking about disparate corporate leaders and uh, their interests in K-12 public education. Well, I guess you're going to have to listen to the interview, aren't you? (laughs) If I must. Just a note on the format of this episode. It's based on an interview I did with economist Gordon Lafer in front of a live audience, which is why you may notice that the Have You Heard recording studio sounds a little bit more crowded than usual. To set the stage for what you're about to hear... Back in 2009 and 2010, Leifer was on leave from the University of Oregon and working on Capitol Hill as a senior policy advisor to the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Education and the Workforce. And he started to notice something a little unusual about a flurry of bills being passed at the state level. Here's Gordon Leifer. The fall 2010 elections were the first elections that were run under the new rules of unlimited corporate spending. And what we started seeing with those legislatures elected then starting in early 2011 was um, much more, first of all, much more aggressive things, anti-union, anti-teachers union, privatization of education, charters, vouchers, a whole lot of things like that. And the same bills showing up in state after state after state. Uh, many people um, saw this. One of the the most important organization at the state level that corporate power is organized through is ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which probably many of you know about. I can explain how it works. And around that same time in 2009-10, there was a whistleblower who released thousands of documents from what had previously been very secretly guarded information about how ALEC worked into the public domain. 
So what we saw all of that, you know, you see um, attacks on tenure, attacks on on uh, uh, replacing human teachers with digital applications, uh, promotion of virtual schools, all kinds of things, all happening at the same time, and in state after state after state. Some of the tracking of figuring out what where ALEC bills were coming was done by using um, anti-plagiarism software. I don't know how many of you use it. We get this at the at universities, right? You get a paper from a student. Here's a thing to run it through that does string searches, right? So they did that with legislation and found, oh, it's really, you know, 75% the same bill being introduced in all these places. So in almost every place where this happened, where uh, like anything, people believe that the bills came out of the head of some local legislator or local politician and a response to particular conditions in that state. And overwhelmingly, none of that is true, that these bills are not coming from any legislator, any politician in any state. They're coming from the national headquarters of the biggest and most powerful political actors in the country, which are the big corporate lobbies, the Chamber of Commerce, the National Federation of Independent Business, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Koch Brothers, Americans for Prosperity, and a bunch of other employer organizations, which we don't normally think of as being involved in education, but were, you know, in a, in a realm where there are thousands of organizations involved in the education debate, the most powerful actors both controlling who gets elected to office and what they do when they're in office. The subtitle of Lafer's book is How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. And that's key. The corporate lobby that he's talking about is made up of companies with familiar names like Kraft Foods and United Airlines and General Motors, companies that you don't typically associate with education policy. One of the things that is so uh, revealing about studying this is like when you study, when you look at individuals, right, we're, we're so drawn to focus on the circus of whether it's Trump or uh, even George Soros or Tom Sire on the left, right? So individuals are ideological and can be motivated by all kinds of things. When you look at ALEC, it's several hundred of the biggest corporations that are not ideologues. Right. At some point in every one of those companies, there was a meeting of the executive committee or the government affairs committee that decided it serves our corporate interests to spend time, money and energy trying to push forward this agenda. And so I think the critical starting point for us uh, is trying to understand why does Kraft Food and Coke and Walmart what is their agenda? Why are they pushing this combination of things that we see in education? And they're pushing the whole combination. They're pushing virtual schools. They're anti-union. They're anti-tenure. They want bigger classes. They want standardized testing. They want a narrow curriculum. They want to lower the, the, um, credentialing and certification requirement and training of teachers. They want, obviously, they want to do away with the public school system. This is, you know, usually you encounter one or two of these things in your state. This is the whole package of things, and they're being pushed by the biggest corporations who are not ideologues, right, who somehow they think this is in their rational interest, right? So I think that we need to start with that as a serious, as the first point of analysis, to look behind the politicians, to look behind Stand for Children or whatever the you know, Teach for America, whatever other million and one, um, you know, nice, nicely named uh, advocacy organizations that are there. Okay, all bite. Obviously, there are some companies that stand to profit from privatizing education, but they're really in the minority here. So, why would a company like, say, Kraft Foods care about collective bargaining for teachers in Wisconsin or expanding virtual schools? There are Republican operatives who want to get rid of 
who want to get rid of teachers unions because they think teachers unions fund the Democrats and it's just party politics. There are rich people who want tax cuts and the biggest part of any, for the most part, the biggest part of state and local government is education. They want to cut education so they can fund tax cuts for the rich. But I think when you look at these big companies and you say, you know, even if you think about the attack on public employees in Wisconsin, which kind of kicked off the current era of state politics, it's not obvious. So Kraft Foods was the head of the Labor Committee of Alec in that year. Was Kraft Food care about lowering wages or laying people off in Wisconsin or Ohio? It's not obvious, and we need to think about it. So I think part of what's going on is this. The people at the very top of the economy believe that America is an empire in decline, and the country is going to keep going down. They don't see it rebounding. Um, for them, the political problem is how do they manage the politics of decline? How do they pursue a policy agenda which is going to make the country yet more unequal, which is going to make the rich richer and the majority of people's lives materially worse off without provoking a political backlash? And I think there's several different things that they uh, that they do to try to manage that. I mean, that's the essential political challenge for the real economic elite. And one of them is, is I think, trying to lower all of our expectations of what we think we have a right to demand just by virtue of living here, either from our jobs as workers or from the government as citizens. In union, or I work a lot in the labor movement, in union organizing, it's common for people to talk about wanting to ignite a revolution of rising expectations, right? Where if a worker has an asshole boss and they win a grievance against that person, then they feel like, whoa. I won. Maybe I'm going to get involved in the contract negotiations. And if you win a good contract, people may feel like, well, maybe I'll try to change who the mayor is. And you keep raising your sights higher. I think part of what the, of the agenda of the corporate elite for, for preventing political backlash is to ignite something like a revolution of falling expectations. So if I feel like, um, my daughter's in a class with 37 kids, which my daughter is, but at least it's out 45. Right? They only have music and art nine weeks a year, but they still have it nine weeks a year. Like, I don't, I don't have comprehensive health insurance. I only have catastrophic health insurance, but at least I have catastrophic health insurance and for now I'm okay. Right? Like, I don't have any paid vacation, but I have a job and I'll have some time off between this job and my other job. Right? The more we ratchet down our expectations of what we think we have a right to expect, the, the, we normalize downward mobility and it makes it politically safer for them. What makes public education such a big target, says Lafer, isn't just the amount of money that states spend on their schools, but what education represents. The list of things Americans think they're entitled to is short and getting shorter. Public education is still on that list for now. Now, when you look at, you know, think, what do we in America actually think we have a right to just by virtue of living here? It's very little. Right? Most people don't think you have a right to health care. We don't necessarily we don't have a right to housing, don't necessarily have a right to food and water. People think we have a right for our kids to get a decent education and a right for the mail to be delivered. And both those things are under attack. Right. And education, I think, more than anything else, right? This is the one almost the one remaining very big thing. There's the um one of these Alec funded think tanks that um the president of it has this quote that I put in the book where he says, K-12 education is the last remaining socialist enterprise in the United States, right? So obviously, like, this is hyperbole. He's trying to whip up his troops. But in some ways, it's right, right, that it's – this is a major, major public good where we 
tax the rich in order to provide a public benefit that you get just by right of being a citizen. When they talk about needing to do away with the entitlement mentality, the most problematic entitlement for them is not Medicare or Social Security or, like, God forbid, uh, you know, actual welfare, which is almost nothing now, but education. And I think education is even more of a problem for them than other things because it's not just something that you get, but the very nature of education is that teachers are trying to raise, to encourage kids to think they can do more, to raise your sights higher, to think you could be something you didn't think you could be, to think you might have a right to expect something that you didn't have in your head when you walked into the classroom. And that's dangerous. We see these corporations acting. We know that they think this is in their, their corporate self-interest. Some of them, like, you know, K-12 Inc. and Pearson, the people who are going to you know, and the investment banks who are going to make out like bandits from privatizing schooling, it's easy to figure out what the interest is. But the bigger corporate lobbies, why does the Grocers Association and the Retail Federation and car manufacturers support this? Uh, I think this is a key part of the answer. If you need to take a break at this point, feel free. Lafer acknowledges that his analysis is pretty bleak, and it gets worse. He thinks that the push to privatize schools could end up making education look a lot like health insurance. If we voucherize school, it's going to end up being like, in some ways, right, like healthcare. Every, I don't know anybody who doesn't hate their health insurance company. But what are you going to do, right? And this is part of privatization is that, uh, and it's not only in schooling, but especially in schooling, right? Right now, there's a lot of shitty schools. There's a lot of shitty schools in the public system, right? And it's a huge problem. This is not just about charter schools and vouchers. There's at least somebody to be angry at when your kid is in one of those schools. When the system is privatized, there's nobody to be angry at. This is like healthcare. Who am I going to be angry at of the fact that I hate my health insurance company? Maybe I should have been a smarter consumer. Maybe I should have worked a little harder and gotten a better job with a better, with a better package. You know, there's no place to go, right? This is part of what happens when we privatize schools, we privatize libraries, we privatize public transit, is we remove the focal point that public anger can coalesce around or make any demand to. There's no, it make, this is another thing that makes it easy for people who are pushing an agenda of downward mobility because you can't, there's, it's very hard to fight back against that. Leifer's book isn't just about education. The laws that he tracked cover a whole range of labor, employment, and economic policy issues. State after state, for example, enacted legislation aimed at weakening unions. But Leifer argues that the real goal isn't just lowering teacher pay or cutting pensions. It's to lower expectations across the board about what workers can demand. The school systems in many, many cities are the single biggest employer. In places where a unionized public employer is the biggest employer in a local labor market or one of the biggest employers, it has a competitive effect on driving up wage and benefit standards for non-union private sector employers in the same labor market. And I can give you the example of where I live in Eugene, Oregon, the biggest employer is the University of Oregon. So let's say secretaries at the University of Oregon get health insurance because they're unionized public employees. That means that a non-union private sector employer who wants to hire secretaries needs to, if not match, at least come up towards the union standard or else live with the knowledge that the best people are going to go work for the university if they can. So the same is true in reverse. When they cut down unions, when they undermine the wage and benefit standards in, in major employers, which is almost everywhere, the school system, it has a follow-on ripple effect for people who work in the non-union private sector. Most people never connect the dots, but this is part of what the corporate lobby's interest is, right? It's dangerous for them to have people 
to have their non-union private sector employees know that somebody has a defined benefit pension because everybody wants that, right? This is part of the problem of rising or falling expectations. By now, you're probably wondering whether this podcast could possibly get any bleaker. Well, there is actually a bit of good news. When the education policies that are being pushed by the corporate lobby get put up for an actual vote by real live people, it doesn't go well. People vote for candidates for all kinds of reasons, not necessarily the reasons that we wish they would decide on the basis of. But when people get to decide on an issue-by-issue basis, which is most often on ballot initiatives, the corporate agenda on an issue-by-issue basis is very unpopular and unpopular across party lines. A strong majority of people want their kids in small classes. Um, a majority of people in both parties think that standardized testing should count for zero in teacher evaluation or tenure. Like where every place around the country we're negotiating about if it should be 30% or 70% or everything else, a majority of people in the country think it should have no role whatsoever. Um, uh, overwhelming support not for decreasing but for raising teacher training standards and for saying that every teacher should spend a year under being mentored by a more experienced teacher before they have sole responsibility in a classroom. And you see this in places where people have a chance to vote um, on specific laws, and I want to give you a couple of examples. Um, one of them was Florida in 2010. So Florida had class size caps written into its constitution and good caps like 18 kids from K to 3, and then I think it went to 24 after that. Um, the legislature wanted to get rid of them. Because it was in the Constitution, they needed to take it to the voters. So they took it, they put it on the ballot in 2010. The legislators supported it. The voters rejected it, like 60-40. Now, this was the Tea Party wave election in 2010, when Florida elected a Tea Party governor, Rick Scott, and elected a very right-wing legislature. If you do the math, several hundred thousand people had to go to the polls in 2010 in Florida thinking something like, I hate government, I hate Democrats, I hate unions, but I want my kid in small classes. Right. We saw the same thing in South Dakota and Idaho, two very red states whose legislatures passed laws doing away with tenure, mandating, quote unquote, merit pay based on test scores and requiring kids to take an online class as a condition of graduating high school. And voters overturned all of that in referendum. Right? This is not California. This is Idaho and South Dakota. I think there's a very fertile ground for uh, pushing for a more humane version of education across in places where we can make the fight be about the specific issues as opposed to about personalities or political parties. Lafer even looks at the state-by-state push to restrict voter rights from a glass-half-full perspective. As he sees it, this reflects not just the deep unpopularity of the policies that are backed by the corporate lobbies, but also show how fearful they are of ordinary people. Because the, the corporate agenda is so unpopular, not just in education, but across the economy, it inevitably leads to needing to shrink the realm of democracy, right? And by this, so obviously part of what they're doing is, is, um, you know, voter ID and voter repression laws of not allowing felons to vote, uh, and, you know, all kinds of things that limit the number of people who can vote. But in a different way, right, how robust a democracy is, is not just about the, if you have free and fair elections, but the realm of economic life, the realm of public life that is subject to democratic control. If you have perfectly free and fair elections and all you're allowed to vote on is the color of the flag, not so good, right? And so what they're, what they're doing is, in almost every state in the country, there are cities or counties that are more progressive than the state as a whole. 
maybe not in California, but in almost every state in the country, corporate political power is greatest at the state level, greater than either at the level of the federal government or local governments. And I've, I could talk later about why that is. But what they're doing is using their power at the state legislature to take away from citizens at the city level the right to vote on things. So this started with passing laws saying it's illegal for any city in a state to raise its minimum wage higher than the state level. In Wisconsin, one of the first things that Scott Walker did was uh, Milwaukee in 2009 by voter referendum was one of the first cities to create a right of everybody to a certain number of days of paid sick leave. Under Walker, the legislature retroactively abolished the Milwaukee law and made it illegal for any other city to do that. We have a, a slew of states now that have made it illegal for cities to create a right to paid sick leave, to create fair scheduling laws like there is in San Francisco, to create laws that um, that make it illegal to have uh, uh, gender orientation discrimination on the job. Um, there was a law passed in both uh, Michigan and Tennessee, that because these laws get broader and broader because they're afraid of pop of left wing populism, right? Michigan's law, its opponents called the Death Star. It banned any change in the workplace, including creating a right to rest breaks, creating a mechanism for recovering stolen wages. All those things were banned by the legislature, right? So this this is terrible, but it's also a sign of them seeing of how unpopular their own policies are and how much energy there is at the local level. So how does something like a state-level ban on a city raising its minimum wage relate back to education? Well, I'm glad you asked. We all know that what almost every research shows is that the single most powerful determinant of education outcomes is wealth and poverty. Right, this is what every study shows. Nothing else. The difference between charter and public schools, the difference between one form of education or another, everything is tiny compared to the difference in economics. So, what we have, what I would say, it's impossible to say I'm against the minimum wage, I'm against food stamps, I'm against public housing, I'm against the earned income tax credit, I'm against a right to paid sick leave, I'm against uh, the ability to recover stolen wages, and I'm laying awake at night wondering how poor children are not getting a good education and what we can do about this, right? What the corporate lobbies are doing, right, because we need to see these are the same, this is not different people, this is not just things happening, this is the same actors pushing all of this, right, who come in, who, when we see them in education is when they come in and say, there's all these failing schools, Right, that we declare persistently failing because their test scores are low. We know that test scores are determined above all by poverty. We have created the conditions of poverty by what we're doing in the, all the rest of our lobbying that you education people may not be paying attention to, right? So we see the corporate lobbies on the one hand creating the conditions of school failure or of personal failure among kids who are struggling and in families under these conditions and then swooping in and say, the schools are failing. Here's the answer charters and vouchers and tech and the rest of the stuff that they want to push. So I think it's important to see that to see these how these things fit together. As I listened to Lafer, I kept coming back to a question that I'm guessing a lot of listeners have. At the end of the day, these same companies that are pushing to weaken our public education system still have to hire workers, don't they? This is a question that a lot of people ask. Isn't it irrational for them to be cutting education and other public infrastructure, because after all, don't they need these people to be their workers and also to buy their stuff, right? So obviously there's a rationality on every side. I mean, the, the corporate lobbies, like everybody else, figures out politics by trial and error and stumbles along and not, not everything is unified. Um, but we, but we see a big pattern that needs to be explained. And I think that we need to recognize that our economy has changed in, 
at least two important ways from what it was a few decades ago. One of these is the degree of globalization, right? So there was this famous, uh, in I think it was 1953, when the president of GM told the U.S. Senate that what's good for GM is good for America. So I don't know if that was true then, but it's much less true now. It was truer was closer to true when GM cars were made by American workers and bought by American consumers. Now a majority of GM cars are sold overseas and two-thirds of their employees are overseas. And this is true of many companies, if you look at who are, who are active in ALEC and the Chamber of Commerce, that in the last couple of decades, a majority of their revenue is owned, is earned overseas and a majority of their products are made overseas, which means is America still important to them? Yes, but less than ever before. Right. Let, we're, we're more, um, extraneous than ever before to their interests. So we're in a political era with something new, which is these companies are still the most powerful actors in our politics in determining our laws, but their interests are increasingly disconnected from the interests of society as a whole because they're less dependent on us than they ever were before. As for that skills gap you've heard so much about, well, Lafer doesn't buy it. Take, for example, how the corporate lobbies are responding to shortages of teachers in states that they dominate. In general, um, corporate America is not saying we don't have enough skilled workers to do what we need. And in the, the teacher shortages, which are acute in Kansas and Indiana and a number of the states that have been going, you know, that are darlings of the education reform movement, their response generally has been to lower certification requirements, or not to say we need to raise salaries, we need to have smaller class size, we need to reprofessionalize the job of teaching in order to attract higher quality people. It's like, no, anybody who has whatever they call it, life experience, a BA, whatever it is, who knows nothing about teaching, um, should be allowed in the classroom. And that we need to think, right? Why is it? I mean, Kansas, Indiana, these are completely corporate-dominated legislature. Not to say there's no corporation that is against this, but why is it that the Chamber of Commerce thinks, yeah, it's okay. Kansas, you want to say anybody can go, you know, almost anybody can go into a classroom and teach? Why do they think it's okay? I think because they have a vision that is much bleaker than mine. That was economist Gordon Lafer. He's a professor at the University of Oregon and the author of The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. Definitely up there with my most recommended books of 2017. Now let's get Jack back in here for a few last thoughts. So, Jack, did you find that as enlightening and as exciting as I did? I found it really unbelievably depressing. <laughs> uh, you know, which is not to say I uh, agree in every respect, but you know, this this bleak vision of uh, a dumbed down world in which uh, our democracy has been reduced to uh, you know whatever the basic needs are of uh, a an Amazon uh, shipping floor or, you know, the, the, the basic uh, skills people will need in order to order things online uh, is not what I would imagine, uh, you know, the, the, the founders had in mind, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And we should mention, of course, that our, we are recording this episode in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is in line to possibly be the, the new location of the Amazon headquarters number two. Because what Boston needs is 50,000 more cars on the road. And what Amazon may need is an education historian. <laughs> 
if Jeff Jeff Bezos comes calling, then uh, then I'm I'm happy to sit down with him and talk through the many things that schools do other than prepare students to click and pack. Well, Jack, unless you have yet another vacation planned, I think we'll probably be doing the next few episodes together. Jennifer, there's always another vacation. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. I'm Jack Schneider. And just a reminder, if you like the high quality content that we serve up bi-weekly, drop by iTunes or anywhere else that serves up your fresh podcasts and give us a positive review. It'll only help us get to more listeners. And don't forget to follow us on the Have You Heard Twitter, which is at Have You Heard Pod. I have actually no idea who who oversees that account. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs>